I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm a sports guy. You know this. this is, these are the facts. I, I, I love sports. But one of the things I, I most love about sports, of course, is rivalries. Just as much as you may love your own team, it is so fun to hate the other, is it not? And so, so, of course, the history of sports is littered with great rivalries. So Celtics, Lakers, like I grew up on, FSU, Miami, Ali, Frazier, USA versus the old Soviet Union, the Florida Gators, and whomever they happen to be playing, right? So in our passage this morning, we have one of the most infamous rivalries in all of Scripture, the prophet Elijah against the evil royals. And I'm talking about, of course, Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal. And this is one of the most well-known of all stories in the Bible. And let me sort of situate where we're going to be into kind of the the bigger picture of our sermon series this summer. So we we have a, a series we've been calling The Story of Israel. And we've been taking some weeks to do a kind of a flyover of the Old Testament to look at um, key events and happenings and people in the life of God's people in the Old Testament because we want to better understand the reality of what was going on in their hearts because Paul's been talking about that in our study through the book of Romans, and particularly in Romans 9 through 11. Paul looks out over the landscape of the church and says the reality is that even though the Jews, God's chosen people, had a front row seat to the story of redemption. They had all the spiritual advantages of being a people of God. In the end, the great mass of them have walked away. They have rejected their own Messiah. And Paul's been writing to us about that. Now, we're going to get back in Romans here in a couple of weeks and continue that story. But in the meantime, we want to try to understand what exactly is happening on the heart level of the people of God in the Old Testament that would deliver them to this place. Because remember, we're not just trying to do a history lesson this summer. We're also trying to see ourselves in God's Word, knowing that we are the modern-day equivalent of the Jews, right? We've been given every spiritual advantage. We have incredible resources. We, we, we have so many ministries and opportunities right at our fingertips. And so what, what can we learn from their story? So, so here's where we've been this summer. Remember, the church did not begin in Acts chapter 2 or with Jesus. The church began in Genesis 12 with Abraham. God looked out on Abraham. He was a moon-worshiping uh, Mesopotamian. And God said, Abraham, I'm going to choose you out of my sheer grace. And I'm going to make you into a, a great family and a people and a nation. And then over the course of 400 years, that's exactly what happens. Two people, Abraham and Sarah, become two million people, but they end up as slaves in Egypt. And so God sends a helper named Moses to rescue them, to call them out, to lead them on to the promised land. The promised land is where they they were going to, was going to be their home base. That was going to be where they would gather to worship, to be the covenanted people of God to live a life of glory and honor to his name, to be a light to the nations. And we saw how Joshua led them into that promised land. But but over the next 400 years, there was a problem. It tells us in the book of Judges, in that day there was no king, so everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And so God had to raise up a king, a faithful king. In fact, he raised up David. And he said, I'm going to put 
a descendant of David on the throne of Israel, and he is going to reign forever. And then we, see, then we saw last week how Solomon's son, David's son, Solomon, David's son, ascends to the throne, and Israel is at the apex of its religious and cultural life. It has a, they have a vast domain. The temple is built. They have gotten off to an amazing start. But over the course of Solomon's life, Solomon has a hardened heart. He falls into sin, and he leads the people of Israel with him. And so what we see, really, in the history of Israel from that point on is sort of a microcosm of Solomon's life lives large. The nation of Israel is off to such a great start, but the next 400 years is just this slow spiritual decline into unbelief. And so this is where we are in our passage this morning. It's now 100 years after the reign of David. And the prophet Elijah has been called to go and prophesy to the ten tribes of Israel. Remember, under God said, Solomon, because you've been unfaithful, I'm going to rip the kingdom away from your descendants. So there were ten tribes in the north called Israel. There were two tribes in the south called Judah. And Elijah has been sent as God's prophet to the tribes in Israel. And buddy, we're going to find this out. He has his work cut out for him, right? Because, leaders, because Israel is now under the leadership of a king named Ahab and his wife, Jezebel. Now, even if you have not grown up going to Sunday school, right, you're probably familiar with the name Jezebel. What's well, under Ahab and Jezebel that Israel has run after other gods, specifically the god of fertility, Baal. And so in, in response to all this and, and the people of Israel turning their hearts from God, God, through Elijah, sends a drought on the land. For three years, it does not rain. Things don't grow. And God is trying to get the attention of the Israelites. So here we come in 1 Kings chapter 18, our text this morning, and God tells Elijah to go and to confront Ahab and to bring this whole conflict to a head. Now, one of the things, truth in advertising, you need to realize this morning is ultimately this text is not about Elijah versus the royals. This is not Elijah versus Ahab or Elijah versus Jezebel or Elijah versus the prophets of God. This is a proxy war. You see, Elijah and Ahab and Jezebel and the prophets of Baal are, are, are kind of, think about it this way. I know we have some gamers in here. They're kind of the spiritual avatars to this larger spiritual battle happening behind the scenes. And the battle is simply this, as we're going to see. Who has your heart? Which God is going to reign supreme? Who, who, in fact, is the true God? If it's God, worship him. If it's Baal, by all means, go worship him. Now remember, folks, again, these stories are not to be like Aesop's fables to us. Just we get a nice little moral or nugget, we put it in our back pocket, pull it away, pull it out for a, a nifty moral lesson when we need it. These stories are meant to be a mirror we're, we're meant to look into the story and see our own selves, to see our own hearts, 
And this is precisely what 1 Kings 18 is going to do for us. It's going to really press us this morning to say, who is ultimately reigning supreme in our hearts? And by that, I don't mean who we say or what we front or what we present as a facade. I I mean, at the deepest levels of our hearts, who has allegiance there? Who or what has captured our emotions and our affections and our love? Where, where, where is your hope this morning? Where is my hope? When the chips are down and, and hope is scarce, where do you run to? Where do I run to? That's where 1 Kings wants to take us this morning. So we're going to be in 1 Kings 18, 17 through 40. I'm not going to invite you to stand. It's a, it's a little longer passage. But it's a, it's a pretty straightforward passage. I think you'll, you'll see the relevance of it immediately. But let's begin in verse 17 and let's read together. So, Four Oaks, hear the reading of God's word this morning. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have, and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel and the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel and gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, how long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us, and let them choose one bull for themselves, and cut it in pieces, and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And I will prepare the other bull, and lay it on the wood, and put no fire to it. And you call upon the name of your God, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people answered, it is well spoken. Then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many, and call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it and called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, saying, O Baal. Answer us. But there was no voice, and no one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, for he is God. Either he is musing, or he is relieving himself, or he is on a journey, or perhaps he is asleep and must be awakened. And they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation, but there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to all the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him. And he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. 
And he made a trench about the altar as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces and laid it on the wood. And he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And they did it a second time. And then he said, do it a third time. And they did it a third time. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces and said, the Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, seize the prophets of Baal, let not one of them escape. And they seized them, and Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon and slaughtered them. There, let's pray. Lord, we pray that you would give us spiritual eyes to understand the war that rages around us. Lord, this is a, this is a war not of flesh and blood, ultimately. It's a spiritual battle. And the principal place that you would have us focus this morning, the locus of this battle is in fact our very souls and our very hearts. And so Father, we ask that you would have your way with us and you would bless us now as we open your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Three points, pretty simple. It follows the structure of the passage and, and here we go. We're first of all gonna talk about the opponents then we're going to talk about the odds, and finally, of course, the outcome. Now, when you look in verse 17, and we're talking about the opponents here, we have to understand that talking smack on the athletic field is not a new phenomenon, right? I mean, some of the greatest smack talkers, of course, were old schoolers. Larry Bird, our own Deion Sanders, Michael Jordan, Mike Tyson, and of course, the infamous, maybe the greatest smack talker of all time, Muhammad Ali, right? Float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. His hands can't hit what his eyes can't see. Now you see me, now you don't. George thinks he will, but I know he won't, all right? I thought that was better than quoting Mike Tyson eating people's kids and all that, right? Okay, a little, a little better example of smack talk. But as with any good competition, okay, Game match rivalry, this is interestingly, 3,500 years ago, begins with some smack talk. Look at verse 17. Ahab said, look who's here, the troubler of Israel, right? And troubler literally means disturber. Um, it, that word literally means to royal water into a, a boil. In other words, a troubler, a disturber, a disturber is someone who turns up the temperature it makes everyone around him or her uncomfortable. And Elijah was that in spades, right? In other words, he was saying, Elijah, I, I've got a pretty good thing going here. I mean, I've got a wife, and I've got power, and everybody does what I say, and I rule ten tribes. 
but you're kind of killing my buzz with this drought thing, Elijah. So, so what are you doing here? And of course, Elijah retorts on his own, and I'm going to paraphrase here. He says, trouble? I'm about to ruin your day, Ahab. That's basically what he says. Now, just a brief bio on these rivals, okay? If Moses is prophet number one in the Old Testament, undoubtedly Elijah is prophet 1A. Just do a concordance, a word search in the, Old, in the New Testament, and you will find that Elijah is mentioned extensively in the New Testament for good reason. Number one, did you know Elijah never tasted death? He was taken up into heaven in a chariot of fire. In fact, when Jesus is on the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, and he's having a conversation, who is he having a conversation with? It's Jesus, Moses, and guess who? Elijah, right? So, so Elijah is a, is a central figure, prophetic figure in the Old Testament in the history of God's people. Now, as for Ahab, listen to what 1 Kings 16 says about him. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger, ready, than all the kings of Israel who were before him. Now, that's, that's an amazing statement if you know the history of Israel. The evilest king, there was evil kings, but there was none more evil to this point than Ahab. And, and let's consider his resume. Remember when God took down the walls of Jericho through Joshua and the people? And what, what did he say? He said, he said, Israel, you will not rebuild Jericho. The person who rebuilds Jericho is going to cost him his oldest, and it's going to cost him his youngest. And so everybody left Jericho alone until, guess who? Ahab. He comes, and it does cost him. This, this was sort of the, the, the realm of narcissism and pride this man existed in. He married a Sidonian woman, not just a Sidonian woman, but this was the infamous Jezebel, right? The bloody Mary of the Old Testament. She, she was the Baal worshiper propagandist par excellence. She, she, it was under her chief influence that the nation was turned away to worship these foreign gods, foreign idols. In fact, she hated God so much, she attempted to exterminate all of Yahweh or God's prophets, and the net effect of all of this, as we get into 1 Kings 18, is that Israel is far, far from God. So in response to this, God, of course, has brought three years of drought to Israel as punishment. Now understand something, this was a strategic punishment, because Baal was the god of what? The god of fertility, the god of life, the god of growth. And so they would seek after Baal for rain for crops, for water, for, for provision. And so this was sort of God hitting Baal where it counted, right? This is, this, is like, this is like hitting Baal at that most vulnerable of point to show the Israelites the futility of worshiping a false god. This is kind of like spitting at Baal's feet in Baal's house. That's essentially what this drought has been. Now, obviously, let me say this before we leave this point. We need to understand this story is not about rain. This story is not about drought. This story is not about crops. This story is not ultimately about life. 
this story is about the spiritual realities that are happening behind the scenes of the drought and of the lack of water and the lack of life. See, this inv- the invitation here in 1 Kings 18 and for us is to look behind the drought, which is just a symptom, to see the spiritual realities that are really at work. It's really an opportunity for the people of Israel to look at the issues of their heart. Now, if I were to ask you this morning to describe for me or for others your biggest struggles or problems or issues in your life, think about this, not just what are they, but how would you describe them, right? Um, how, How would you frame those issues? Maybe you would say, well, Pastor Paul, if I just simply had more money or a different job, things would be good in my life. Or if I had the right medical solution, or if my spouse would just change, or my kids would just behave, or my boss or my employees would do X, Y, and Z, or if I could just get married, if I could just have children, some of you might be the opposite, if I could just not have kids or not have, or be unmarried, right? If, if, if something in that equation would change, I would be good. Here's the call from this passage for every single one of us, Four Oaks. We want to be able to see behind all of these things into spiritual realities. Please understand something. There is a battle. There is a spiritual battle for your heart and soul. And a lot of times we want to say, this is all about the drought, This is all about the lack of water. If we only had rain, it would fix all of our issues. And we need to understand every one of these pieces of suffering that God brings into our life, every obstacle, challenge, every every point of, of deep struggle are always going to be about our souls. They're always going to be a test of our spiritual character. They are going to be an invitation from God to us Are you going to trust me? Are you going to entrust yourself to me? It's an opportunity to say, how how through this situation am I to glorify God? How am I to give him honor? How how am I to, to grow in him? Because the biggest opponent in our lives is not all the stuff out there. The biggest opponent in our lives is all the stuff in here. And so secondly, let's get to the odds. And here we're going to look at in detail this this battle or particularly the the, the parameters of the conflict. And it's 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 very interesting. It, I mean, and I think the writer of Kings spends a lot of time going through all the details of this for a reason. We're going to see this. First of all, Elijah tells Ahab, "Gather up all the people and the prophets of Baal, and meet me behind the school gym, right? That's essentially what he says. He says, meet me on the plain of Mount Carmel. And that's not random, by the way, okay? Historical research indicates to us Mount Carmel was a narrow strip of land on the Mediterranean coast, and it was the sort of the the central hub of religious activity for the prophets of Baal. This is where they live. It's where they train people. It's where they offered sacrifices. 
and worship. It was sort of a breeding ground of Baal worship. In other words, Elijah said, we're going to do this on your turf. You're, you're going to have the home field advantage. The next thing he says, of course, is the challenge itself. Which God can bring fire down from heaven to consume the offering? But note how different he instructs the sacrifices to be prepared. For the, for, for, for the, for the prophets of Baal, it's, it's very simple. Just get some wood, dry wood, of course. Get some, get some sticks, get a, get a piece of meat, an offering, and, and stick it on the, on the altar, and we'll see if you can get fire somehow, right? But for, for Yahweh, for Elijah, it's a, it's a radically different preparation process, right? He's like, you gotta build a tr- you've got to dig this trench, and you've got to build this altar, and then you're going to get water, and you're going to pour so much of it, okay, over the altar, not once, not twice, but three times. It's going to, I mean, this is a waterlogged sacrifice, right? It fills the trenches, it's so much water, and, and, and of course, this is overkill, but we, we understand what Elijah's doing here, right? He's stacking all of the odds in Baal's favor. In other words, Elijah wants there to be absolutely no doubt. He says, you can go first. We're going to do this on your turf. We're going to give you all the advantages. He even reminds them here in the text, I am one, but you are many. You know, it's kind of like Elijah saying, I'm going to fight with one hand tied behind my back, right? Now, why, why is he doing all this? Well, as Steve Spurrier once said, it's more fun beating another team when they have their best players. Isn't that right? See, Elijah wants to beat or have God show himself powerful despite all of the human odds being stacked against them. And now, 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 understand something. It's not about the fire either. Just like it's not about the drought, it's not about the fire. How many times in Jesus' ministry did the, the religious leaders ask him to do a sign from heaven? What were they asking for? This. They were asking for this. You've done it once, God. You brought fire down from heaven. Bring it again. And Jesus always steadfastly refused. Why? Because they weren't after a sign. Right? They just wanted a magic show. They wanted a spectacle. Even if Jesus had done it, what would they have said? Ah, oh, he did it by the powers of Beelzebub. No, no, no. This is not about the fire. This is about verse 21. It's, it's the central verse in this passage. It's where God is going to impress something upon the people of Israel. It's what he wants us to impress ourselves into. Verse 21, let me read it. Here's the issue. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? That's the goal of all of this. Now, let's unpack that for a second. Two words there. First of all, limping. It literally means to be hobbled or to halt or to, to be lame. In fact, it's the same word that's used later in this text when it says that the prophets of Baal were limping around the altar. See, when the prophets were limping around the altar, what that means, they were cutting themselves, right? And they thought the more they cut themselves and the more they danced and the more attention that Baal would give them and he would respond, but the net effect of all that was it just simply made them weak. 
And so what they ended up doing was sort of stumbling around like a staggered drunk around this fire. And so Elijah's saying, first of all, stop staggering and decide between two different opinions, okay? And that word opinion means to be divided in mind, to be double-minded. I love this. It's the inner angst of indecisiveness. And you know, if you're floating between two things and two realities, that indecisiveness can be greatly anxiety-provoking, right? Here's what Elijah's telling them. How long, Israel, are you going to be spiritually on the fence? How, how, how much longer are you going to stumble around, wonder aimlessly? How long are you going to be double-minded in your heart? Now, today, is the day to put your cards on the table. Now is the day to declare your allegiance. You're like a drunk wandering around through traffic. Sober up. Get to it. You are about to get run over. And really, this is not just the heart of the issue for them 3,500 years ago. Let's be honest. This is, this is the heart for us today. You see, some of us are living as if we can remain non-committal in our spiritual allegiances. You know, Pastor Paul, if the wind blows this way, I, I, I can do the Christian thing, I can do that talk, I can go to church, I can even show up at community group and put on a facade, I can do that. But, but I can very easily pivot, right? I'm a, I'm a spiritual chameleon. I can, I can blend into a variety of contexts. And if the wind is blowing that way, I can fit right into the world, no problem. Here's the problem with that, by the way. You may think you're vacillating between two poles, but you're not. It's impossible. Jesus said, ultimately, no one can serve two masters. He will love one and he will hate the other. And this is precisely what he is Jesus is telling the church in Laodicea in Revelation 3. And another familiar passage, listen to this one. And to the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the words of the amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. I know your works. You are neither cold nor hot. Would that you were either cold or hot. So because you were lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Now, some have misunderstood this passage to, to mean that Jesus says, look, don't be just kind of righteous, either be totally wicked or totally awesome. Okay, that's not what Jesus is saying. You see, Laodicea was known for what? It's hot mineral springs. It's where people would go to get medicinal help for their ailments, which meant in Laodicea, there were only two kinds of water that would do you any good. Hot water that would help your body, and then cold water by which you were meant to drink. And what Jesus is saying if you're lukewarm, you're absolutely useless. You're, you're, you're just good to be thrown out or spit out of a mouth. Some of you have heard me, heard me use this illustration before. I, I think it's, it's, it's appropriate. If you're a tennis player, you want to be in one of two places on the court, right? You either want to be crushing ground strokes from the baseline, or you want to be up at the net hitting down at the ball 
in volleys or hitting easy overheads. Where do you not want to be if you're a tennis player in the middle? You, that, that, that's called no man's land. That's where you try to hit half volleys. That's actually where you get yourself killed if you play somebody really good, right? You're, 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 you have no power. You're no effectiveness. You are what? Lukewarm. Just, just a question. It's a question for me just as much as it is for you. Where in your life are you hitting spiritual half volleys? Where in your life are you in spiritual no man's land? Where in your life are you limping, staggering between two opinions? Is it with your kids or your marriage or your money or your priorities, your hobbies? And here's the problem, and we have to be reminded of this every single time. It never works. We will always gravitate to the lowest spiritual denominator in our lives. Now, if you need motivation at all in making this decision, right, about where you are and, and kind of your allegiances spiritually, it's, it's informative about how Elijah goes about talking, okay, to this, um, to the idols of Baal, right? And here, Elijah engages in a little bit of spiritual taunting. In fact, it says he mocks them. Now, let me say something about this. If mockery is your primary spiritual gift, you've got a problem, okay? Let me just say that. If, if that's your primary thing that you lead with all the time, then you probably need some other spiritual tools in your tool belt. But, but, sometimes spiritual mockery is very appropriate not to elevate yourself, not to put someone else down, not to give yourself a platform and be funny guy on social media, not for those reasons, but to expose the utter futility of following after other gods and idols. And this is what Elijah does. He says, where, where is your God? Is he taking a nap? Has he gone on a trip? Don't fire me when I say this. It's what he says. Is he taking a whiz out back behind the tree, right? All of this is meant to make us say, this is, this is ridiculous. It's absurd. It's just as absurd as trusting in our own idols. You see, we think that our idols, and by the way, we call them nondescript postmodern things like preferences. Like we call them things like hobbies. We call them things like non-negotiables. Pastor Paul, I've got several non-negotiables in my life, right? Things like money and sex and power and status, respect. We think they are going to deliver. We think they are going to bring the fire down from heaven. They think they're going to resolve all of our problems. And Elijah wants to remind us, whatever that thing is that you think you can't live without, and remember, an idol is a good thing that your heart has made an ultimate thing, which has become a bad thing. Whatever that thing is that you think you cannot live without, God is simply reminding you, that idol, when you really need someone, when you really need hope when the chips are down, that idol is going to be out on a trip. 
that idol's going to be in the bathroom. That idol's going to be taking a vacation. <laughs> that, idol, that idol is not going to be anywhere around. Is going to do you absolutely no good. And no amount of, of self-flagellation, cajoling, bargaining, hoping against hope, cutting yourself, proverbially, will make it otherwise. So what's the outcome of, of this story? Look at verse 37. Elijah prays this. He says, answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now here, here's, the, here's the takeaway verse. Here, here's, here's the conclusion of this part of the challenge. It's very simply stated. It's understated for a reason. Listen, he says, then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust and licked up the water that was in the trench. You may have seen that Capital One commercial with Charles Barkley where he's getting ready to play a pickup basketball game with a bunch of elementary school kids and they're picking teams and Barkley gets picked first. And what does he do, what does he do when he's picked first? He turns around to all the other kids and says, I told you, I've still got it, right? And, and the idea, is, it's laughable, right? He's Charles Barkley, he's a Hall of Famer, he's Olympian, he's, he's, he, he's going to dominate these little kids. Well, that's the same thing that we're meant to take from this description. It's about this conflict between Yahweh and Baal. It's just laughable, right? This is a total annihilation. This is, I mean, Baal is run limited, right? Not only does fire come down from heaven... But it consumes the offering, the wood. And I never noticed this until this week. Guess what else it consumed? The stones, <laughs> the rocks. Licked up every drop of moisture in this trench. In other words, it's not even close. It leaves no doubt. And what do the people say? The people say exactly what we say when we have had the futility of our idolatry exposed to us. They say... The Lord, he is God. Now, it would be very reasonable, would it not, to expect that this is finally, finally, the opportunity for Israel to get back on track. This is finally the, the beginning of revival in Israel. At long last, the hearts of Ahab and Jezebel are going to be exposed. At worst, they'll be destroyed, but, but maybe this is the time for revival. Maybe there'll be repentance. Maybe there'll finally be religious reform in Israel. But it's not to be. Look at 1 Kings 19. Ahab told Jezebel all that Elijah had done and how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, I am so sorry. Is that what? No, no. So may the gods do to me. And more also, if I do not make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. Then he was afraid and he arose and ran for his life and came to Beersheba, which belongs to Judah, and left his servant there. You know, when you, when you were elementary, middle school, and you got in these little verbal competitions, you know, my dad can be beat up your dad, I got an A, what did you get, I made the team, did you make the team, all that stuff. And what was, what was the best defense at that age? So, 
right? So what? That, that, that's what Jezebel says, basically, so what? And we cannot underestimate the kind of bitter disappointment this is for Elijah. See, when it says that he runs away, this is not just naked fear. He's just confronted 450 prophets, okay? This is not naked fear. This is incredible disappointment and discouragement. Elijah is absolutely crushed. You see, he thought, if the people just put away their idols, if I just put away my idols, if I just declare my allegiance, if the people declare their allegiance, everything's going to be good. Listen to 1 Kings 19.4. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree, and he asked that he might die saying, it is enough, now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my forefathers. A lot of us, let's be honest, can really understand Elisha, if we're honest. I've done, I've tried to do everything you've asked me to do, God. I've tried to be faithful. I've tried to put away idols. I've followed you. I've acknowledged you. I've tried to be repentant. I've tried to confess my sin. Where's the payoff? Where's the fruit? Where are the results? I wonder how many of you can really personally identify with that this morning. This obedience thing, this faithfulness thing, it's not delivered me, and it's not delivered my life to where I think or thought it would. And so what does God do with Elijah at this very low moment of his life, the lowest of the low? In 1 Kings 19, read it, it's it's a fascinating chapter, but he gives him a reassurance and a promise. Look Look at 1 Kings 19, 18. This is what God says, yet, Elijah, I will leave 7,000 in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. What is God telling Elijah? Elijah, I've got this. Despite all outward appearances, I'm working my will. I am sovereign here. I'm taking care of business. I'm raising up a remnant. So, so, so don't question me, but just examine your own heart. Will you trust me? You see, that, that's the decision point for all of us this morning. Will we trust God? Will we entrust ourselves to him? Very interesting, Paul was wrestling with that same issue, was he not, in Romans 9 through 11? We've seen it this past season. His fellow countrymen, his Jews, had walked away. There was none left, hardly. And for his encouragement and hope, interesting, guess where Paul goes for his encouragement and hope? You guessed it, 1 Kings 18. Listen to what Romans 11 says. God, Paul's It says, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says of Elijah? How he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars and I alone am left and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men and have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. Because when your idols fail you, and they will, 
don't look out there for your solution. Look to the Word of God. Run to the only place where we have the inspired truths and words of God himself. And what Paul would encourage us towards this morning is don't stumble over the mysterious purposes and ways of God. Just entrust yourself to him. Who else are you going to trust? This is, this is of course, was the cry of Peter, right? Jesus says, are, are, are you disciples? Or Peter, are you going to desert me as well? And what does Peter say? Look, I don't know much, but I know this. You have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? Because remember that appearances in this life can be very deceiving. And we can think that Satan and the world and the flesh and the devil and sin are having their way. But it is God who is ultimate and true. You see, from the outside, if you wanted to measure things that way, Jesus' earthly ministry, if his goal was to build an earthly kingdom, it was an abject failure. See, his followers scattered, he died a shameful death. There was no lasting political structure or kingdom. But Jesus said, I did not come to establish a physical kingdom. I came to establish an eternal kingdom. And the way I'm going to do this is I'm going to die for you. And before you can be a part of my kingdom, I have to rule and reign in your heart. And of course, this is the true lesson of 1 Kings 18. See, the Jews in the Old Testament, God did not establish that earthly kingdom the way they thought he should, and they turned away in unbelief. But for us as new covenant people, God has said, my purposes cannot be thwarted. Uh, you can entrust yourself to me. I, you may not always understand what I'm doing, but make no mistake, I'm working all things for good. You're good. For, the lot, for those who are trusting and have trusted themselves to me. Do you know that kind of God? Guys, that that God is available to you right here, right now, this morning. His name is Jesus Christ. He has laid his life down for you. He has offered himself in your place as a sacrifice for sins so that you can find hope, true hope, eternal hope in him. Let's pray.